0: What is up, everyone? I hope you're having a wonderful 2023. Inside the War Room is, of course, here, ready to go. A lot of shows this year to put out. Two things you can do to support us. One, give a five-star rating wherever you listen to this podcast. A like, a thumbs up, subscribe, whatever that looks like on your platform. We would greatly appreciate it. Two, if you want to support the show, you can do that by going to warroommedia.com. That keeps the ads off. That keeps us rolling. Kept, it Covers our cost. We would really, really appreciate that. Warroommedia.com.
1: Frank, welcome to the War Room. Pleasure. Nice to talk to you.
0: Okay. Well, you are at first. Um, would you consider yourself a prolific writer? Is that how you would describe it? You, you write a lot.
1: I write. I I, I love writing, so it comes naturally, and it's uh, something that you know gives meaning to my life. So. Out of little
0: books, yeah, you do, you do, and so let's let's talk. You consider yourself a democratic populist? Maybe unpack what that term is.
1: Well, I think these days, uh, democracy cannot be taken for granted, and people, everybody calls themselves democrats, from the North Koreans all the way through the you know the French and the East Europeans. But democracy is very rarely live and people very rarely uh, believe that democracy is good in and of itself not just as a means to elect people but to have a a kind of a a world where there is argument and debate and people feel that they're not just passive lawyers but they're citizens of their society because at the end of the day democracy is the only guarantee that we have that uh, freedom can be preserved there's no written guarantees that will do that. And I'm a populist, mainly because all the people that are uncomfortable with democracy are always anti-populist. And uh, in many ways, one of the biggest problems of our time is that anti-populism has become this ideology that looks down upon people and suggests that when push comes to shove, you need experts and scientists and very educated politicians to make decisions for us because... The rest of us are a little bit too thick to be able to know uh, what's in their interest. So yes, populism is very important at the moment because what it really means is that uh, people are are demanding their voice, they demand to be heard, and they demand to be part of the conversation rather than just excluded.
0: Okay, so let me go back to something you said there, which is um, democracy is how we ensure freedom. And this is a concept that that I find interesting because each election in the U.S., we claim that democracy is up for the grabs, like it could be lost by the process in which democracy puts forth, which is voting. And so how do we balance what is a threat to democracy, A, and then B, can't a democracy diminish its ability to be free as well?
1: Well, I think that freedom is something that we have to be always on guard because it's always under threat. There's always uh, forces out there that want to limit our choices. They want to limit our capacity to be genuinely free and they want to impose a certain way of life or certain ideas upon the rest of us. And that can happen everywhere from schools to universities to kind of public life in general. But I think that Today, what we're confronted with is a situation where, as you suggest, the very act of acting democratically is seen as a, a threat to democracy. And what they really mean by that is that if the majority votes for people with whom they disagree, then that's a threat to democracy. So, in a sense, uh, you know, they regard the the people's acting democratically as, as a threat to themselves which is why they would rather that less people voted, they were more passive, and left politics up to the experts. Mm.
0: So you you touched on it, something there about the number of people voting, which is, it's something that I've struggled with because how do we go about determining, uh, we can set aside maybe the age question, let's just assume 18 is a good age for the sake of conversation, but how do we go about determining should every eligible voter be able to vote on every issue? And so you could come up with a a hypothetical where um, a certain voter really is not impacted by a question on the ballot, um, but they're able to give their voice. And so how do we think about those issues? Which voter should, if you're eligible to vote, you can vote for any issue on the ballot, or should there be some kind of constraint to determine um, what issues you're age eligible to vote? So I'll give you one example. We do not send our kids to public school; um, we private school. So it'd be it'd be reasonable for someone to ask, should we be able to vote for the school board because we have no stake in that game, for the most part. We have some, uh, but not a lot. Um, maybe, mainly around taxes. So that, those kind of questions. How do we think about? Do we cut anybody off? Is there ever time to cut somebody off? And if so, what's the process for
1: that? Well, I think the only time you would limit the right to vote is when it comes to the future of a community. So, you know, if you live in New York, then you don't have the right to vote upon how Buffalo makes decisions about its future because we recognize that those are local issues. But it seems to me that there's an element of arbitrariness because the the logic of that is I'm a very keen skier and I love sports and a lot of people don't like or don't like sports and they may not want to uh, allow people like me to get resources or the community or children to get resources to be involved in, in, in active activities like that. But it's just because they're against it, it doesn't mean to say that the community shouldn't give resources because it's, it will benefit the community overall even though only some people are using it. So. You send your kids to private school. I'm sure that one reason why you send your kids to private school is because you have maybe a lack of confidence in the public school's ability to educate your child. But voting for the school board for the right kind of people may uh, mean that the quality of education uh, would improve. So you still have a skin in the game. Because your kid presumably still hangs, hangs out with children who go to public schools that Your children are affected by the other kids around them, and therefore we have a responsibility for children as a whole, not just to our own kids.
0: And and, and so in that, there's a way in which you're you're saying, um, I shouldn't be able to vote, obviously, for a San Francisco school, I live in Texas, a San Francisco school board election. There's no relevance to me there, Um, but in Hood County, Texas there's extreme, there, there's, there is a sense of relevance because of the way the community is built.
1: Exactly, and and, and, and therefore uh, what happens in uh, the school system is of, and should be of concern to every adult because they have an impact on the future of that community. Probably a greater impact on the future than anything else. So
0: you mentioned earlier one of the reasons that you're populist is because people... Or anti-populist, <laughs> kind of the contrarian, yeah. the contrarian view. Do you generally uh, consider yourself a contrarian thinker, or is it just more on this one issue?
1: I, I, I'm not even contrarian there, you know, but, but sometimes uh, you have to ask why is there such hostility directed at certain sections of society, and then you realize that actually uh, the reason why you know populism is is, is kind of pathologized and treated in such negative ways because what they are really against is people expressing their voice, people finding their voice. And the way that I look at it is that that's something that needs to be encouraged because at this point in time, uh, the biggest threat to our way of life are those who want to close down discussion and want to take away people's right to voice. So that's, uh, people call me a contrarian, but I don't, Think of myself as a contrarian because, like most people, I'd rather be popular. I, I love to be in the mainstream. I'm fed up with being on the uh, with the minority in society. I love to be with the majority and not be given a hard time by my opponent. Well,
0: so part of so on the populism thing, I wrote a piece a year or two ago. I can't remember what it was, um, and essentially, it's argued that. The problem that populism has, uh, from my perspective, is if you take a populist candidate, it seems that what they tap into is people are not being listened to. I am one of you. I am listening to you. Therefore, I'm going to take your message to here. Good and great. No problem there. The problem is that once you become, once the populist candidate kind of gets traction, the scrutiny surrounding said populist candidate is just like any other politician by his own base because he's now one of them. And so instead of being a Republican or Democrat and saying, that's our guy, well, now you've got the populist label. And so ultimately you might have some short-term gains, but it seems that the support for these candidates in the long run uh, is typical of any other political uh, uh, person. So you'd have to have a populist candidate that that stays on brand, if you will, to be successful. Would you agree with that assessment or, or not?
1: I think that any politician that is a leader rather than just merely a narrow technician has got a duty to be his own man. So you might be elected by by a constituency on the basis of a certain affinity and the fact that you are expressing their views in the most coherent way. But that doesn't mean to say that you then become merely a demagogue who just basically says what the people want to hear, or what you think the people want to hear, a real leader also educates, and a a real leader also gives direction. So a populist politician like any other politician has got a responsibility to lead and sometimes uh, present their constituency with some uncomfortable facts, some uncomfortable truths. And it seems to me that uh, one of the problems in, in the West at the moment is that leaders don't lead, they try to manage or they try to flatter their constituency. Whereas, in fact, what we need are people who can occasionally stand up and say, look, you elected me, you've got to trust me to take you in a direction that you might not want to go into. And if you find at the end of the day that, you know, I misled you, then you diselect me. But leading is leading. Uh, and we don't need all these managers and technicians. We need genuine leaders who are able to take risks and, and, and actually take society forward.
0: Now, I think part of the mm-hmm. the leader kind of top-down control thing, it, it, one of the things that I've said for, for many years is if you look at the U.S.'s foreign policy on you know China, North Korea, whatever, a, a kind of regime that wants to um, control its people, it, it seems that, our, at least the messaging that comes from the the administrations, it seems that our understanding of what these governments are trying to do is not, I don't really find it that, that overly sophisticated. I don't really think that we understand what they are saying, why they're saying it. And so we kind of create this, this propaganda or at least propaganda or a misunderstanding of what it is they're trying to do. Um, And if you were to just to sit back and say, well, if you look at North Korea, just to take them as an example the one thing that North Korea doesn't want is exactly what we're doing right here. Like that's the one thing, all of their actions are to prevent their people from getting this thought process of, you could think of something different. Kim Jong-un is not a God, whatever it might be. They're 100% restrictive of that model. So sanctions are not going to work. Threats of war are not going to work. Those are things that North Korea actually uses to bolster the support inside the country. Um, And so it's no wonder it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me when you talk about managing um, when we come back to the States and how they handle domestic policies, it it seems that because they can't understand what's going on globally um, and and how things work there, that, that they do want to control us here and they're going to mismanage that same thing. So if they can't manage the, some of the things they're responsible for, then they're going to likely get a lot of other things wrong. And so, it doesn't surprise me that they control because they want to control things, and then when you see them control things externally, they, they kind of miss the boat on that as well.
1: Yeah, and very often the uh, failure to conduct a, a sophisticated and a grown-up foreign policy can have disproportionately greater negative consequences than getting something wrong domestically, because if you you know sort of go to war or you invade another country if you spend a lot of time lecturing uh different societies about trying to impose your way of life upon them that can blow up in your face and that can lead to uh, you basically uh, being humiliated internationally i think america's humiliating withdrawal from afghanistan is a paradigm of what happens when you simply uh, are unaware of what's going on, where you simply don't understand the world around you, and where you basically project your fantasies on another nation, and that can have, uh, you know, that can actually lead to not just to war, but to world wars in, in some cases, because you unleash a dynamic which kind of uh, has this kind of destructive effect that creates a chain reaction all over the world, and I, I often, you know, sort of uh, Get really depressed when I see uh, America or, or Britain, you know, imagining that foreign policy is about lecturing, acting as the moral guardians to the world, and trying to tell them, you know, sort of they should be more democratic, they should be more this and more that, at a time when there are so many things that are going bad within their own societies that they don't really have the moral authority to preach and 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 act as moral guardians to the no. globe.
0: Yeah, okay, so the Afghan example might be a good example here to unpack a little bit. Um, If you kind of followed the story, the Afghan papers, the various things, you wouldn't have been surprised that things weren't as we were being told about in the U.S., right? Um, There there was definitely enough of the tea leaves to figure out that it's, you know, when we leave, it's going to fall. Whether it would fall the way that it did during the withdrawal or not, that's a separate issue, but just generally I think I would suspect if you polled most Americans, they wouldn't realize that the Taliban would take over within a few months or a year. They would think, "Wow, this has been turned over. We've been told this for so long. So on one hand, you have the reality on the ground, um, which our government knows about. You have the message that they give back to us, the people, which we hear. Uh, and then you kind of look at it and go, well, what's like? where is the disconnect? Do you think that is because they don't think that we're adults, that we can handle the information? Do you think it's because um, D.C. isn't in tune with what's going on on the ground? They don't care. They don't want to listen. Like, Why is there such a big disconnect between what's happening on the ground and what the American people are being told?
1: Well, I think there are several issues. There is, uh, there is what you suggest, uh, a reluctance to, to, tr- uh, to tell people what's going on and to treat the citizens as if they were children. There's also something more important, which is that if you talk to people who work for the State Department, or here in Britain where I lived in the Foreign Office, you would think that they are sophisticated diplomats. They are. They are really. They they really have a good grasp of their brief. But actually, very often you're surprised how immature and childish they behave. And I had that experience when. After 9-11, some of us from Europe were asked by the State Department to go to a briefing meeting on Islamic terrorism. And we met, some, for example, met the guy who was the FBI's head of counterterrorism. And talking to them, we were a little bit shocked about their lack of grasp of realities. They, it was almost as if they they imagined that the world was uh, one where, you know, sort of the terrorists were actually, you know, These boys that had somehow made a few mistakes, they didn't really uh, understand the full facts, and with a bit of education, we could solve the problem. And you had these very naive assumptions about the way that the world works, and that has continued till now. I think that there is a crisis of uh, geopolitics in the West, which means that very often your people in the State Department actually believe the, (laughs) the fantasies uh, that they then project, project and and and, uh, and 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 kind of communicate to the rest of society. And it's, you know, obviously, some people were smart and they knew that Afghanistan uh, had reached a dead end and uh, was going to implode, and America was going to be forced to go out. But I've, I've talked to people who have a military uh, sort of experience, and, and they tell me that. You know, six months before the withdrawal, American uh, America in NATO told the rest of the NATO nations that we're in Afghanistan for a long haul, and you guys had better stay there with us. And then, just before the withdrawal, they made an announcement to the NATO a NATO meeting where they said, "Sorry, we're leaving in, you know, sort of 48 hours." Uh, and everybody was shocked. Nobody expected the Americans to leave at that particular point. And the very fact that they could do this indicates uh, a kind of very childish and very self-centered, you know, sort of almost narcissistic way of operating global affairs. So I think, unfortunately, the problem is even worse than just simply lying to the American people, because uh, very often they end up lying to themselves as well.
0: So, if you take that, what you just said about the about the United the UN the withdrawal, um, what's what's interesting is if China would have done that, like the roles were reversed or China did something similar, the outcry from the West would be, you know, you're not you're, all of the various accusations, and so you kind of have this dual standard that's at play, which is essentially, you know, the U.S. and China seems to do what they want to do but both get frustrated when they do that and call the each other, call each other out <laughs> when they're kind of just mirroring each other and it, it, it gets pretty frustrating for the observer like well y'all are both you're both just doing it to each other
1: yeah i i think there's a bit of that but you have to remember uh, how the world regarded uh America's withdrawal and the West's withdrawal from Afghanistan i mean it really lowered their authority. their you know basically people said that what happened there is a bit of a joke i don't think russia would have invaded ukraine if that hadn't happened I mean, i think when 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 putin in moscow saw the humiliating withdrawal and the and and the the manner in which america and the west left afghanistan they basically putin must have said well they're a bunch of idiots they're they really haven't got a a capacity to do anything uh, decisive they're not gonna stand in our way if we invade ukraine i think that uh, that invasion was in, at least in part linked to what had preceded it. Yeah. See, how do you
0: go about determining what's in the mind of Putin? Because the reports are on that is that, um, you know, from Beijing that Putin didn't warn Xi Jinping that he was going to invade. And so you kind of have that same thing there. You would, you would, you would, exp- you would uh, it's reasonable, at least, to think that maybe Putin and Xi Jinping would have been in uh, cahoots. Of course, those reports could be false, but it seems that the Chinese side is pretty, pretty adamant that Putin caught them off guard as well.
1: Well, I'm sure that's the case, but the, you have to remember that there is no uh, kind of strong uh, sort of uh, tension between China and Russia. They are uh, competitors, and they often have a, an important uh, sort of rivalry between them. And in many ways, it's because of the pressure that's been exerted on them by the West that has kind of brought them together. But their interests are very, very different. And, and it's unlikely that uh, Putin would have felt the need to uh, explain his long-term plans to the Chinese. Uh, and therefore, I'm not, not all that surprised by what has happened. And uh, what, what what is interesting is that the West reaction Uh, both to China's aspiration to take over Taiwan and Russia's invasion of the Ukraine has kind of temporarily brought them together. But that's not going to last for very long. I think the the logic of the uh, situation is one where the conflict between Russia and China is likely to uh, acquire a much more tangible form. And already there is evidence that China is taking advantage of Russia's failure to make headway in Ukraine by moving into Kazakhstan, by moving into some of the uh, Central Asian republics and uh, establishing a stronger economic relationship, edging Russia out. There. There's even talk of a pipeline being built by the Chinese from Kazakhstan into Europe and thereby pi- bypassing the, uh, the existing pipelines that are in, under the control of Russia.
0: So you think it's possible that that that, um, these two kind of get after each other sooner rather than later?
1: At least in economic terms, I think China is a much stronger economic power and has the potential to, uh, in a sense, limit Russia's sphere of influence in Asia and to essentially take over some of the very important regions that contain a lot of strategic materials, contain a lot of gas and oil. And, uh, and, and in a sense, established a much more hegemonic uh, sort of authority there.
0: So, I mean, your current book, obviously, is about Ukraine. So you you talk about that. So let's kind of put that in perspective. So what do you think Putin's, so you, you mentioned Putin's thoughts on the U.S. withdrawal, but what do you think he was trying to accomplish by invading Ukraine?
1: difficult to say. I, I think probably, you know, he has a, Strong legitimacy problem. I mean, Russia is much more fragile internally than it appears outwardly. And Putin and his oligarchs are, are to some extent, struggling to retain control over the different bits of the Russian Federation. Uh, I think that he, he hoped that an easy, convincing victory in Ukraine might have a positive impact on uh, domestic opinion and consolidate his position. That's probably the main reason, rather than uh, sort of strong geographical ambitions. Uh, uh, and I think that, together with certain security concerns, led him to uh, you know, kind of engage in this very foolish activity. Yeah,
0: and that's part of the question is, you know, so we, we talk about our kind of elites and, them not being able to understand stuff, but it seems that Putin's just as guilty of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is surprising how much he failed to understand the way the world works, the failure of his army to behave in a professional, committed manner. That was something that must come as a very big uh, surprise, that the Russian army did not want to fight. So when it got to the Ukraine, it wasn't Really enthusiastic about what it it set out to do. They had nothing to defend, whereas the Ukrainians did. And if you look at the tactics and the strategy that the army adopted, it really showed a high level of military literacy, just doing stuff that, uh, when you look up, just unthinkable. The way they used tanks and uh, went into the Ukrainian long collars, essentially turning themselves into targets, sitting ducks. Uh, Is just um, uh, unbelievable, uh, and the way in which they failed to establish logistic and supply lines, again, that's like uh, surprising because you know Russia, you know, has had a long experience of fighting conventional warfare in many parts of the world. But I guess Putin got it. Currently, uh, has that you can do in Ukraine what you did in Syria. He essentially just relied on drones and air power and never had to commit very much very many soldiers on the ground and essentially its army had almost no experience in fighting a conventional or, uh, warfare.
0: Yeah. One of the things that I've wondered about, um, is maybe, so, uh, you know, obviously Russia's economy is, is relatively small compared to the U S it's, you know, I don't know if it was a, a state in the U S it'd be like top 10, I think five to 10 range anyways. Um, but the other thing is, and, and I haven't heard a lot of people comment on this, I'm, sure, I'm curious your thoughts, is we always talk about the military-industrial complex and, and, and how that impacts decisions and the budgets that go toward it and stuff like that. But I don't think that, that exists anywhere else. I mean, you know, obviously China and Russia have militaries and they have um, weapons, but just the pure crony capitalism that's involved to just produce stuff in, in the U.S., would seem to give us a strategic advantage just because we're wasting, in my opinion, billions and billions of dollars. All this stuff, I don't think these other countries are, are really doing that to the extent that we are. So um, it should give us a competitive advantage, and it should it shouldn't shouldn't surprise us maybe that these other countries are, are going to uh, struggle a little bit from time to time because they're they're probably not putting the same amount of money into it uh, that like the U.S. is.
1: Well, I think you're right. To, up to a point, but you have to remember that when uh, push comes to shove, it's not uh, the case that uh, success in the military sphere is entirely dependent on the quality of your hardware. Yeah, that's important. I think what it also uh, is at stake is the willingness of your army to fight. And I think that there's been a huge problem for the United States because the American armed forces have become uniquely casualty averse, you know, sort of, uh, they have a, uh, a, a, a kind of a con- conception called force protection, which basically means that they don't want to take too many risks that will lead to casualties. And, th- and therefore in, they will not engage in certain, uh, kind of combat missions that might be necessary because it, it could lead to, you know, a loss of life. So Uh, When you have a risk-averse army, as you have in the United States, that explains why there's been a, a string of military defeats, which is unprecedented. It's never happened before that the most powerful nation militarily gets set back and defeated by nations that are much smaller and far less equipped. I mean, that was the case in Vietnam, where essentially America could not match the willpower of the Viet Cong. And that's been the case ever since then. In, in even in Iraq, a number of instances where uh, after the years of occupation and years of a heavy military presence, they had to, you know, kind of leave and, and uh, yeah, being defeated. So there's more to war than hardware. There's also the will to fight, uh, the ethos of uh, duty and solidarity, courage. All these classical. Uh, military virtues, which I think are conspicuously weak amongst uh, Western armies.
0: Yeah, and, and that's a question that I hear uh, when I hear your question, I, or your, your, your thesis, I definitely think that you're, you're right. And the, the thing that's interesting is, if you hear the soldiers talk, they would say the same thing, which is the army, the generals are restraining us from fighting. And so it's a it's a weird dynamic, but that kind of also goes to show, I think, that there's kind of this, perhaps, and, and I, I'm not an interventionist, but 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 if you're wanting to go invade a country, then the best way to do it is probably not the way that we're doing it, which would result in more casualties. The problem is then you had to convince the people back home that it's worth having their sons die in war for this battle, where it's easier probably to send the drones have some bombs drop on them, no casualties on your side. It takes a lot longer. It's less effective, but no one's dying. And so the the sentiment is a little bit more subdued because there is no mass trauma to the families in the U.S. And so it seems like that's kind of the, the game that's being played there.
1: It is. Uh, and uh, experience shows that that's not an effective way of going forward. I mean, this is what they tried to do in Syria. It's a very good example. You know, if you remember, they were going to get rid of Assad. And they kept on saying it's only a matter of time before the regime will fall. And the regime didn't fall. So uh, I think that the lesson here is that if you merely, you know, sort of have laptop generals pushing buttons, it might create a a lot of casualties and and, uh, destroy a lot of buildings. But number one, it doesn't win and minds. Number two, there's no substitute for having boots on the ground. That's something that uh, yeah. you need to learn. But in any case, why invade other countries? What's the point in doing that at the moment?
0: Yeah, like I said, I'm not an interventionist, but <laughs> but if you're going to, it's kind of a, a separate discussion. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. And this is something that, you know, if you if you think about. I got a a cover to a book. I don't know where the book's at, but D Day, minute by minute, right here. If you think about D Day, you know what it actually took to be successful was the boots on the ground, the ships in the sea, the planes flying overboard. They did some support, obviously. I'm not trying to diminish that, but but it was the men on the beach moving forward. That's what it took to take that. Um, And so we have enough military history to know that targeted strikes, um, bombing campaigns. They're only so effective. And that's pretty, I don't want to say on the margin, but it's, it's, not, it's just not enough to turn the tide, it seems.
1: Yeah. I mean, again, it depends on the nature of the enemy, it depends on the context. But basically, you need to have a balance between air power, you know, the, the role of the army. and But in particular, I think what's really key here is that the way you win wars is when your military, your personnel, believes in what you're doing in other words when they they really have a stake in its outcome a direct stake in its outcome whereas if you're indifferent and you're going through the motion whether whether you're a russian soldier in the ukraine or an american soldier in afghanistan you know you know you're not going to risk your life unnecessarily for a cause that means very little to you I think that's the lesson that we have to draw from this. Whereas the Ukrainians, you know, fought fought very, very hard because they were fighting to defend their homes, and they really felt that they had no choice but to fight. And that's why they proved to be so superior to the invading army.
0: Yeah. Well, what is that? Does that tell us anything about the nature of? Warfare in 2022, which is, um, are we less nationalistic maybe than we would have been 100, 200, 300 years ago? Where the 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 top guy saying go invade, it's like yeah, I don't know. I got a warm house and food, and I'm not
1: sure it's really worth
0: going and doing all that. Is that part of what's going on here? That this nationalism is not as strong as it used to be.
1: In part, but you have to remember that even. In the 19th century or before, soldiers very often uh, uh, were less than keen to put themselves in harm's way, and soldiers were, you know, naturally uh, committed to preserving their lives, and, and that was very often more important to them than the outcome of the battle. But what there was was a more general sentiment that uh, you know, you had a common sense of who you were, bonds between people and communities was firmer than previously. A stronger sense of duty, loyalty and solidarity than the case at the moment. Because at the moment, you know, duty has become empty of meaning. Solidarity is very feeble. Loyalty is often seen as a very old-fashioned ideal rather than something that's relevant in the 21st century. So when these basic virtues, these basic uh, values have are become so marginalized, then it's not surprising that there isn't that kind of collective impulse that you need as a as a vital ingredient for in warfare. Well,
0: and I'm wondering if part of that is because um, how we view the world is being changed, especially the West, definitions, um, how we think about things, political agendas. There, there's a lot of questions that are up in the air. I mean, we've had on um, a few guests talking about uh, critical race theory and kind of what the impacts on that is and, and how you go through having those conversations. And so when you're questioning the foundation of a society, and to be clear, if you're in North Korea, you should question the foundation of that society. So I'm not saying that there's no time to question that foundation of society, but when you question it, we just have to acknowledge that you start shaking things and all of a sudden you're not exactly sure that you're going to get something better than what you had. It could be worse. It could be better. Um, but to get the answers that you're looking for is a very hard process that most people aren't really interested in, in in working through to to determine what was fact, what was fiction. And then moving forward, realizing that no matter how you move forward, once you shake this foundation, the law of unintended consequences is going to get you. So when you take a step forward, you might be good, but it also might be bad. And so it feels like that's part of the problem that we have in the West is we're trying to examine where we're at, what we've done right, what we've done wrong, and there's really a fight for where we're going in the future.
1: Well, where are we going in future is is almost impossible to determine when you basically give up on your past, and that's what happened in the West. I think that uh, what you have in America, in particularly is a situation where people regard their historical past as, a, as, a, as an era of shame, where you basically regard the founders of the United States as essentially bad people who uh, were just ordinary slave owners. When you regard someone like Lincoln as an undistinguished president with all kinds of flaws, when you write off everything that's been achieved in Western civilization as of no moment, no longer relevant, as outdated, so, when you basically have detached society from the past, then you end up in this purgatory, this uh, permanent limbo in the present, uh, where you become completely uh, unconnected from anything that has inspired previous generations and under those circumstances, society lacks the moral resources to, uh, in, to kind of inspire and guide society in any clear direction and. That's what America is to me. Whenever I go to America, I'm just really surprised at the malaise, the divisions, the petty squabbles, the tension between different groups uh, you know, that, that you get. The it basically means that the ordinary, decent people in the United States uh, are unable to exercise their influence because they're working within this uh, ever fragmented political landscape.
0: Yeah. So, and for me, you, you, kind of the outsider, I'm I'm asking you to help me here. For me, part of the problem is, um, if you take a progressive, left wing, and kind of a Trumpian right winger, right, the progressive will make a make a claim, and for the sake of this argument, we'll say the progressive is off the mark. So the progressive will make a claim, and instead of the Trump. Trumpian right winger saying, "Well, ninety-two percent of this is wrong, but actually eight percent." There's 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 agreement here about there's something wrong. We might disagree about why it's wrong or how we he got here, but we do agree that this portion is a problem. Instead of saying that they they wash out all one hundred percent, and both sides are guilty of this. And so where the, the margin where there actually is a, a agreement about there is a problem that gets dismissed, and and both sides pretend that neither side has any legitimacy about the things they're saying. When I'm not saying that both sides have full legitimacy, obviously, but on the margin, there should be a lot more agreement than there is. And so to me, that's a foundational problem that that we have in the U.S. is we can't even agree that there is certain problems, and so we can't agree with that. We're never going to find solutions.
1: Yeah, because in America, and that's happening in Europe as well, instead of having political opponents or adversaries, you have enemies. And with an enemy, you know, you don't sit down and, and kiss each other or shake hands. With an enemy, you fight one another. And this polarized world in the United States where people only talk to people like themselves, where people become almost like a mirror image of one another, almost like a grotesque caricature, where you essentially believe that you got nothing to learn, having a debate and an argument. Uh, where you vilify one another to a point at which uh, there is no point of contact. I think you do have a, ver- a very big problem. I think that's extreme in America. Uh, but we also have the same pattern coming to the surface almost everywhere in Western Europe. And I think that's a very dangerous development. It indicates uh, that there isn't such a sensible political movement I can bring together different types of people and at least be open to the idea that they got something to learn from their fellow citizens.
0: Yeah. I mean, a, a recent experiment I've been running with some of my friends is, uh, I've got, oh yeah, here it is. I've got this book on, uh, like all the major writings of critical race theory. And yeah. one of the things yeah. that the, one of the authors points out is, um, is that Brown versus board of education was supposed to re uh, integrate the schools. And he points out that in that uh, inflation, which disproportionately impacts lower income communities has held back black and Brown communities from moving to better schools. And I was like, Hmm, okay. (laughs) Like there's, there's some meat on that bone to chew on. And so I've said that to people and it's been interesting to hear the response because, because knowing it's from a CRT proponent, they almost want to say, no, 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 no. It's like, well, well, hold on. You can't be an in the Fed guy on one hand and then deny the impacts of the Fed on the other hand. And and so it's, it's, this is the reality, which is if you're saying that the Fed in this case causes inflation or that government spending causes inflation or what a bad monetary policy causes inflation. And we know inflation disproportionately impacts lower income communities. You can't then argue (laughs) that that's not holding down or hurting certain communities. Now, It doesn't necessarily invoke that it's a racist motivation, but there is a problem there that we should all just stop and go, hold on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see that this could be a problem, whether it's what the genesis of the roots of it are, I don't know, but it is a problem. And so I don't know why things like that to me are so frustrating that those are just the low hanging fruit agreements that most people should be able to agree on and they can't.
1: Well, no, I mean, and I can understand that because sometimes when, you know, somebody calls me a racist or somebody calls me a fascist or whatever, you know, you don't feel like smiling at them and, you know, sort of and inquire into their view of the world. There's a kind of you know, visceral reaction that you often have, you know, because it's such a polarized landscape. So I can understand why people are like that, but as you suggest, you know, that's not the best way forward. I think it's much better to listen. I think listening to one another is really important. But also, the other thing that troubles me, especially because I'm an academic, I'm a writer, is that the two sides don't read each other's stuff. So, you know, people don't know what, what, what the other side actually thinks. And therefore, they have a very caricature view where they're coming from. Whereas I think that it's, you know, I'm obliged that in this culture wars that I'm involved in, I read all sides, you know, of the divide and I understand what is it that motivates my opponents? Why do they think that you know that white supremacy is the biggest problem in the world? Why do they? Why are they saying that I got white fragility? Rather than you know, I know I haven't got white fragility. I'm not a fragile person. I know they're going to be probably idiots, but nevertheless, I want to know what is it from their experience, from their thinking that has led them this kind of conclusion. We have to know that. You have to understand what makes them sick in order to have an intelligent encounter and in order to perhaps begin to resolve this issue.
0: Yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that, to your point about reading both sides, it's it's the people that I find that read both sides um, uh, in some of these debates that will read the other side and they will not they will not acknowledge any of the things that are true that the other side says. Instead, they harp on all of the other things. And, and it, it's it's like, well, yeah, OK, that was that's quite obvious that, you know, that that a lot of this is, is wrong. Uh, but but is there is there a point of agreement? And it, it feels like to me um, that people are afraid to get on the point of agreement because then you're afraid. So if you say that inflation is a problem with the CRT proponent, you're 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 afraid to igno- that you might be considered uh, endorsing that line of thinking instead of just simply saying, no, 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 I'm not endorsing anything. It's just inflation is a problem and it impacts the poor. You know why is inflation? Why why is inflation a problem? You know how do we get here? Those are separate questions to ask. And so it feels like they're, they're, you, you, we can't just parse out. And say, well, I agree here. I don't agree here. And because of that, we we can't find any agreement on, on anything. So, so go ahead. I'll let you respond if you have anything.
1: No, no, I I, I agree with that. I, I think that uh, we have to at least some of us have got to learn to be grown up and generous, sufficiently generous to the other side. I think a sophisticated uh, person will want to engage with the most difficult argument that they're throwing at you rather than the easiest one. So for example, a a lot of people I know are make fun of uh, transgenderism because it denies the reality of of a a world where the two sexes are female and male. That's the easy part of the argument, uh, but they then have some more, more kind of complicated arguments that need to be taken up. And then that's going to be the situation all the time that we don't just uh, you know sort of make fun of people and their arguments, but take seriously you know something that uh, the more complex dynamic that makes them think the way they do.
0: There we go. I was saying. Um... You are a prolific writer, so you have a substack. Why don't you talk about that? We'll send people there. Um, this podcast, we just moved to substack, so we can, I think, link that up somehow when this podcast drops. But um, and, and When do you publish? Kind of give people a rundown of, of your substack
1: and your work there. Um, well, I mean, if people want to know where I'm coming from or what I'm working on, my substack is called Roots and Wings, and that's Frank Ferretti, uh, substack.com I believe uh, and I, I'm, I'm doing a, a, a lot of work on this because on the substack I can be really myself and uh, express myself in a more complex and uh, a more um, you know sort of lengthy way than you can do when I write a newspaper article uh, and I also it's a nice way for me to engage with people who are maybe critical questioning what I'm writing or maybe offering a different line that I haven't uh, uh, adopted. But I also write books. And uh, my latest book is called uh, war, uh, the, the Road to Ukraine, How the West Lost Its Way, which I, I did after, after visiting Ukraine when the war broke out. I felt it was very important that I got a first-hand experience and understood the issues at stake. Um, so I really welcome people's criticisms and people's comments because the way that I learn is when readers and the public keeps me on my toes and forces me to account for my arguments.
0: Okay, great. Well, we will link to that in the show notes for everyone. Um, And I think when this podcast comes out, because it's on Substack, there's a way that it does something different. But if you're listening to this outside of Substack, which almost everyone does, um, you, know, you can go to Substack. It is right there in the show notes for people to check out. Okay, Frank, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed this discussion.
1: Pleasure. Pleasure, I'll talk to you in the future.
0: Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now, I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five-star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com? It helps keep the show going and ad-free. Thank you so much.